0: I, I am a pastor at Maple Ridge Baptist Church. The reason why I became a pastor was a few reasons. I love people, and so I was kind of getting sick of just traveling around and, and just, you know, not really getting to baptize anybody and discipleship because, like, you know, I'm here, but I'm going to be gone pretty soon, and so I don't know what the follow will be from this. Maybe it'll, the, the church will split or something after my sermon. I don't, I'm not sure, Pastor Paul. <laughs> but I wanted to kind of be a pastor again where you can kind of be with people, Somebody said that I had a, a seagull ministry and that I would fly in somewhere and squawk a lot and <laughs> defecate on people and then fly away. <laughs> and so I didn't want to do that anymore. So I kind of, And then I told the group yesterday, actually, the other thing that uh, why I didn't stay in apologetics ministry is uh, because uh, the, the difference between an apologist and a large pepperoni pizza is quite clear. The large pepperoni pizza can easily feed a family of four. So as our young young family was growing, we realized that we needed to start putting down some roots, and I got an opportunity to be a pastor at Maple Ridge Baptist Church. It's a church that was planted in 1912. So you can imagine trying to have any new ideas in a church where you say, hey, let's try this, and they say, yeah, we tried that in the 80s and the 60s and the 40s. And I think in uh, 1915 we tried it as well, so I don't know if we're going to try that again. But anyways, that's the challenges that I have, and I just get to come here and relax and debate atheists. No problem, right? It was fun. <laughs> I thank you so much for your prayers. I just felt like God had, was just covering us, and we felt like we had the support of this church, which was great, because, you know, you're going into the lion's den, but there was a few Daniels in the crowd, and I know that we were all in that together, so I thank you for that. They, uh, they were recording it. I think uh, it'll be, uh, if you, like, if you missed it, it'll be posted on YouTube at some point. So that's exciting. Did it did it go well? How would you know if it went well or not? That's the question that we were asking uh, before going in. Because, I mean, Matt, my uh, d- debating partner, he does this for a living. He just goes around and, and travels and debates Christians about uh, all various topics. And so I was kind of wanting to set my expectation at a reasonable level. And I realized I'm probably not going to see him come to know Jesus right there. On the platform, he's done it so many times that was his job. It would cost him his job if he became a Christian. So I was expecting, you know, a little less. So we said, well, what would be some reasonable goals that we could take as a win from the from the time? And we decided, my wife and I, that, that probably it'd be best if Christianity was defended with intellectual rigor and passion and in a in a in a way that was uh, true to. Orthodox Christianity and also that the topic, the, the findings of science. And if we could get across that, that was the topic. That's what you guys brought me in for. So I would hope that that would be uh, one of the missions that we had. And, and I felt like that went well. Secondly, we said uh, it would be a win if the atheists in the community would feel loved. And the atheist either on the platform or in the congregation that was there. And we felt like that was a win too. I, um, One of my mentors said, you know, if you don't love Matt Dillahunty, John, everybody is going to know about it. And if they can sniff that out on you, no matter what you say, you will lose the debate. And so I think God really did give me a love for um, for Matt as I, you know, I don't have a lot of time as a pastor to uh, to do studying for debates, but I would w- go on the treadmill at the gym at home and uh, in the they had a little screen there and I would watch all of his debates on YouTube uh, as I was running all the time. So I felt like I knew him and nothing he said really surprised me because I've heard him talk about it all the time so it was cool to see like to actually get to know him and then thirdly we said, decided it would be a win if the gospel could get in there a couple of times and by gospel i mean the good news of the life death and resurrection of jesus that is good news for sinners and that's i believe uh, by the grace of god we got that in a couple of times and people heard the gospel so uh, when i thought about how the christianity was defended the atheists were loved and the gospel was sprinkled in there at times i thought you know that is a win no matter what happens so, yeah, that was, a, that was an exciting time. It was definitely a challenge for me being at my first time. I don't expect all of you to do debates. I really don't. But I do expect you to be a part of the Great Commission. If you're a Christian, then you should be engaged in the mission that God has for us. That is to spread the gospel across all nations and all people groups and everywhere, every school, every workplace, every family table. We want to see the gospel penetrate those areas, and so you will be called by Jesus. You are called by Jesus to be a part of that mission. That's simply as Christians. We are saved by God and called by God and sent by Him to, uh, to go to the nations, to go everywhere and proclaim the gospel, and we know that it doesn't always go well. Consider this story that uh, you, you'll recognize that I've completely ripped off another sub, uh, subplot or another story by the great uh, Dr. Seuss. And uh, I drew these cartoons just to illustrate simply that when we go to share our faith with somebody, it doesn't always go well. It's a story about a, a guy named Dan who really wanted to share his faith with his neighbors. And so he knocked on the door one day and said, Good day to you. My name is Dan. I'd like a minute, if I can, to tell you about this Jesus man. For your life, he has a plan. His neighbor, a bit annoyed at the interruption, says, I will not worship Jesus, Dan, even if, even if he has a plan. But Dan was resilient. He said, if you simply read this track, I promise to get off your back. The neighbor responded, I will not read this track you give. I have a life I like to live. I will not worship Jesus, Dan, even if he has a plan. Well, to my church, yes, you must go. You have to come and see the show. Could you, could you sing a song, hear a sermon? Not too long. To your church I will not go. I wish you would leave me alone. I do not care to sing a song or hear a sermon very long. I will not read this track you give. I have a life I like to live. I will not worship Jesus, Dan, even if he has a plan. Would you come and play guitar? Attract the girls from afar. (laughs) Do you like my Christian bracelet? You get one too if you embrace it. I will not come and, and play guitar. I pick up my girls at the bar. To the church I will not go. I wish you all of this you surely know. Not a sermon, not a track. Your bracelet's stupid. Take it back. I will not worship <laughs> Jesus, Dan, even if he has a plan. Well, Dan, not one to take rejection so easily, continued on. Do you like my Christian shirt? It is a hit with Pastor Bert. Check my blog. It's on the web. Find out what the right wing said. Uh, how about a bowling night? Maybe then you'll see the light. Not a shirt, not a night, or the opinion of the right. Not your blog or guitar is more enticing than the bar. Uh, not a sermon, not a track. Your bracelet's stupid. Take it back. I will not go into a church. Leave me alone. Resume your search. I will not worship Jesus, Dan, even if he has a plan. Then Dan had to have a little think. Dan Dan paused and thought a bit. He had a moment, then had to sit. Why was he so weird with them? Maybe he could try again. What if I became your friend? To you, my lawnmower, I could lend to share uh maybe i forgot to mention to share god's love was my intention and next time that i call you sinner i will have you come for dinner then we could discuss this jesus man why he is called the great i am i told the past service just in case you're confused i'm a baptist so those are cappuccinos that they're cheersing you need to know that on record And then the neighbor, really, he had a turn of heart too. He said, if you do the things you say, be your friend now, I just may. Dan, I hope it's plain to see you did not need to pressure me. Go to church while I just might. It takes some time to see the light. And you could help me with my doubt. Together we could work it out. And I could worship Jesus, Dan, for my life. He has a plan. And that's the end. Oh, thank you, thank you. Your spontaneous applause is, is a, is a thankful gesture. So the, as we're in these conversations, we need to realize that sometimes they don't always go well, and they do take time, but we can be prepared for them when they come. Because the, if the expectation from your leadership, if the expectation from Jesus is that you're going to be out there as an ambassador for Jesus, we want to know that you have great encounters. You need to be prepared for it, and the Bible gives us that commendation to be as prepared as possible so that you may have a successful uh, experience when people may be antagonistic to you that was certainly the case in the first century the uh, disciple peter the famous foot and mouth disease peter would say i would do anything for you jesus and then he would often get become humbled by what jesus would reply or become humbled by how he would act jesus i will do everything for you oh yeah jesus says Well, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, there's Peter after his friend is publicly arrested, no longer wants to be associated to Jesus, willing to uh, turn uh, turn his knowledge of Jesus aside. He doesn't want to be associated with it, even to a little girl. He won't even admit that he was a follower of Jesus. But then Peter has this encounter with the risen Jesus. And he becomes a bold proclaimer of truth. He says that this Jesus, who was publicly killed, is now the Lord and Savior, the resurrected Lord. I mean, remember Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost? That sermon is, I mean, it was like preaching 101. And people start off by, they see this great move of God and they say, you know, what does, what does this mean? And then Peter tells them, it's God moving through people. Uh, Jesus is alive. You need to repent and give your life to Jesus. And how do they respond? they say, what shall we do? I mean, is that not the exact uh, blueprint for what you want people to do in a sermon? They start off by saying, what does this mean? And they finish by saying, what shall we do? It's unlike my sermons, right? They start off by saying, what does this mean? And then at the end, they say, what does this mean? (laughs) But not Peter's message. Peter was a, became a leader in the church. He became a pillar of, what the, of the gospel going out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He had a group of people that looked to him as their pastor. He wrote a letter to them because they were being challenged in their faith they were maybe on god's side but not on the authority side the romans and the jewish leaders didn't want anything to do with this jesus movement it was stirring up dissent it was rustling uh, ru- sorry ruffling the feathers of the peace of that rome sought to achieve you see rome was known for being very open to all sorts of gods as long as you believed everything that they did they were very pluralistic in the sense that when they would conquer a country or sorry con- conquer another uh, area um, another culture, they would say, what kind of gods do you have? Bring all the gods into our pantheon. We welcome everybody. It seems to be very inviting. As long as you brought your God in with everybody else's God, you were tolerated, you were accepted. What seemed to be very tolerant actually ended up to be very intolerant. Because the Christians would say, no, no, we don't buy that idea that all gods are equal or that all gods can be worshipped. In fact, we believe that there's only one God, and that God's name is Jesus. And so Rome, seeming to be tolerant, actually said, no, we won't tolerate your message. If you don't agree with us, then we're not going to tolerate you. And that's the same story that we hear today in our culture as well. As long as you believe everything we say about the nature of reality and the nature of religion, we will tolerate you. But the moment you disagree, you will find yourself on the outcasted in our society. You will find yourself not invited to our parties anymore, and you'll be marginalized. It's the same story. That was what Peter said. Uh, experience with his congregation. He talks a lot about in his letter about suffering for being a Christian and how it's noble to suffer for Jesus. And then he says, and as you're out there being an ambassador, you're going to have to learn to defend the things that you believe because you're going to be questioned about it. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 3:15. It's near the end of your Bible. If you're flipping around and you see a guy riding a white horse, you've gone too far. You need to just back off a little bit. There's no people and horses in First Peter. So 1 Peter 3.15, I'll just give you uh, one more moment to, to get there. And I actually have it on the screen. Oh, there we go. First Peter 3.15 says this. I'm trying to stall. The pages are ruffling. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So my outline for today will be four points. The first one is this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. My second point will be this always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Thirdly, for a reason for the hope that is in you. And fourth, do it with gentleness and respect. I just totally ripped off that outline. I, to- I understand. This is kind of the apologetics calling card. This is the verse. If you ever hear someone who's interested in apologetics, this is the verse that they go to. So you best, if you're interested in our material that we're talking about, or if you're interested in defending the faith, here's Here's the verse that you put on your your business card or you stamp it on your forehead or whatever you do. But you remember this one. This This is the one we go to. And the thing that I think is so important because sadly it's neglected so often is that the apologetics calling card starts off with a verse about the state of one's heart. Now, when people talk about apologetics, I've seen, I mean, I I had to go around and I talk about it, and then they say, oh, the apologetics, I'm skipping that week. I don't want to hear about those guys that go around and they try to pretend like they're so smart, or they try to beat people on the head with uh, wise-sounding arguments, or they talk too much about philosophy and not about the Bible, or, you know, they're just trying to make people look foolish because, you know, they're just upset because their dad didn't retweet them enough, and so they're trying to fill a void uh, in their heart, and so they just want to make themselves look smart, but we know that knowledge puffs up, and I don't want anything to do with apologetics. And I would just say this. I think that the, corrective, the correction to that kind of behavior is right there in the main verse of what we are talking about. And just because it's been done poorly doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done anymore. I think of the great theologian John Bon Jovi, who penned these words. Shot through the heart, and you're to Blame. You gave love a bad name. And whoever this little darling is that he's writing about, this lady that might have broke his heart or broke someone's heart, but she gave love a bad name. But was John Bon Jovi willing to give up on love simply because someone wrecked it? No, he wasn't, probably. (laughs) And if he was, then there's counselors available for $60 an hour that I'm sure he can afford. But just because something's been abused in the past or done poorly doesn't mean that we stop doing it. And the correction is right there in the Bible, the Bible that they claim to read and espouse as, uh, you know, with the verse that supports their ministry or their reason for out being out there to defend their faith. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your heart, set apart Jesus from all other things. That's what holiness is all about. It's being set apart, and we honor Jesus as holy. He is number one in our lives. And as a result, as you're doing that, there's going to be a difference. When you honor Jesus, there's a certain joy that comes with following Him, that the truth sets you free. Uh, He gives He gives comfort to those who are broken. He gives you uh, courage when you feel weak. He gives you hope when you feel despair. There's something about knowing Jesus that transforms you. And people start to take notice. People start to take notice, and then they start to ask questions. Why? There's something different about you. Your world is falling apart, and yet there's a strength that I see in you that I don't see in my friends. You got that awful news from the doctor, and yet somehow there's joy in you. In your life, you just lost a loved one, and yet somehow you're rejoicing that you're going to be reconnected with them. What is it that's different about you? It's because this person honors Jesus as holy. We have to believe that Jesus still makes a difference in people's lives. And so the assumption is that as Peter's uh, early church is living a totally counter life to the Roman culture of basically, you know, satisfy all your desires, do what everyone else. Is doing worship all the gods as equal. These people are living a totally different life, and many of them are being persecuted for it, but there's a strength that comes in the persecution. There's a help that comes in the time of trouble. Others are noticing it, and they're asking a question, which is why our second point is this, that you need to be prepared when people start asking you questions. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. That word defense, that's where we get the word Uh, apologetics from. Defense in the Greek is apologia, or apologia, however you want to say it. But it basically is the image of a courtroom where somebody is standing on trial, and they're saying, you know, what is your defense for this claim that you are making? You say you are uh, innocent. Why are you innocent? Or you say, this is the case. Give us your evidence. Give us your reasons for why that's true. And the person must then give their reasons to support their claims. And this is what Peter is telling us, that we Christians have to be ready to do. And simply saying, well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we could give, right? You know, people say, why should I become a Christian? You could say stuff like, well, you should be a Christian because I said so, right? That's, the, that's, how, our, that's how parents kind of somehow try. Or uh, you could be a Christian because I have the power and you are small and I'm going to squash you if you don't. Right? But this is a power play that many people uh, run away screaming from, uh, literally and metaphorically. You could give an appeal to the collective. Right? You could say, you should be a Christian because everyone's doing it. I know a lot of friends, and they're doing it. They're all Christians, and they're having a great old time. You should too. But did you know that that's the same recruiting strategy as cults? That that's how cults uh, recruit, is just be a part of everyone. Find this community. We have to be better than that. You could say, be a Christian because it changed my life. Jesus transformed my life. And while the personal testimony is very powerful, yet someone else could counter with, well, that's great that Christianity changed your life, but yoga transformed my life. Personally, I don't know how you feel about yoga. I think it's a bit of a stretch. (laughs) So that person tried yoga, and this person tried the Atkins diet. Right? And this person tried you know, something else, some, some brand new idea. So it's testimony versus testimony versus testimony. There's got to be something more than simply just it transformed my life. I think we can do better than power plays, appeals to the collective, and the testimony. I think we can actually appeal to truth when people ask us why we believe what we do, why we make the kind of claims that we do. And if we want to get far in this culture, then we need to appeal to truth and not simply to power uh, the group thinking or our own testimony be it as important as it is for us Christianity is real because it's true Christianity changes lives because it's true people need to become followers of Jesus because it's true and can you uh, can you defend that here's the here's my situation I confess that I was woefully unprepared though I was raised in the church And I found Jesus to be amazing. Heard about him dying for my sin. I became passionate about following Jesus. God called me into ministry when I was 20. I wanted to be a hockey player, but he wanted me to be a pastor. I was still trying to get over that. (laughs) But the truth is, he could have had me, uh, you know, playing in Edmonton, and then that would have been hell, right? (laughs) You don't think the battle of uh, Oilers fans and um, Flames fans versus Canucks fans is going to just, you know, be healed in the church, is it? We can get over it, but it's still there. So, God had a different plan for my life. He called me to ministry. I went to Bible college on the frozen tundra of Regina, Saskatchewan. It moved all the way to Calgary. I had some amazing experiences there at Ambrose University. But I have to confess that I didn't know anything about apologetics. I couldn't talk philosophy with people. I couldn't understand the Christianity versus science question. I didn't understand uh, all kinds of things about maybe giving evidence for how God exists. I couldn't defend the trustworthiness of the Bible. I could preach Romans. And I could tell you the various uh, theories on who wrote the book of Hebrews. I could tell you all kinds of stuff about a survey of the Old Testament. But I couldn't debate people. I couldn't engage with skeptics. And I tell you that I paid the price as a youth pastor. Because I would send out my students, be it to their, uh, uh, their high schools, and as they got older, into their universities. And they would come back and say, John, it was so great you told me to tell people about Jesus. But I did. And they came back at me with all these different questions. Like, how could God be good in light of all the suffering and evil in the world? Or hasn't science disproved God? Because my professor seems to think it has, and all my classmates seem to think it has. And so I told them about Jesus, and I got laughed at. And now I felt like nothing. So what do you... Help me, pastor. And I confess that I was woefully unprepared. So I started to realize that I have to equip these people i have to train them to do ministry in the 21st century in an increasingly secular nation on sec- on hostile campuses and hostile workplaces even around hostile family members and if they were going to keep their faith and pass on their faith and they needed to understand their faith they needed to be able to give a defense themselves they couldn't just come to me they had to be out there doing it on the campuses themselves and so i realized that i was unprepared And so what I had to do was quit my job, uh, sell my motorcycle, which I still miss uh, to this day, and I got a chance to study at the University of Oxford for a year, which was a fantastic experience. I got to uh, study under some amazing minds, went on to Biola University to do a master's degree, and came back home to Canada with a passion to equip uh, Christians to be able to engage with skeptics. And that's uh, currently what... Uh, we're doing here. This is what I hope that you will take from today, that there is a journey ahead of you. Now, you don't have to sell your motorcycle. Keep that thing. Uh, just do it. You'll miss it. You don't have to, you don't have to quit your job and, and move to England or go take a master's. I would say that you need to be prepared to answer six questions. I said it was five at the first service, but then we added a sixth one because I think it's important. And so when, when Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense, anyone who asks you, you don't need a master's degree, you just need to be able to get a handle on these six, because these are the big six that I've experienced. The first one is uh, evidence for God. What is the evidence for God's existence? People often say, prove that God exists. We can't prove it. In fact, we can't prove most things in life. We can't prove love. We can't prove justice. We can't even prove that we're not all people uh, living in a, uh, like a, a vat that some mad scientist is harvesting our... Our, our brain uh, energy for his own use. Right, we can't prove that stuff, but we can have evidence about stuff, and we can have evidence that God exists. You, can you give the evidence for God's existence? If you can, uh, you can move on to the second question. second question has to do with the authority of the Bible. How can you trust the Bible? It's an old book. Why would you trust a doctor from 2,000 years ago? So why would you trust your ethicist or uh, morality from 2,000 years ago? Hasn't the Bible been discredited? Isn't it full of errors? Aren't there contradictions? You need to be able to defend the claims of the Bible, especially if you're going to call people into this church and talk about the Bible for 40 to 45 minutes every week. People are wondering, why can that book be trusted? Can you give a defense? Uh, Can you give a reasons for why you believe the Bible is important? Thirdly, you're going to need to know a little bit of philosophy because the number one question I get asked is why, how could God be good in light of all the suffering and evil in the world? I think that this is a number one question because people are living in this broken world and it's painful and they see stuff like cancer and they feel bullying and they see divorce and they see abuse and they see uh, it all throughout history as well as it's staring them in the mirror and they encounter it every day in their lives. So you need to be able to answer that question because people are asking that and it's a legitimate uh, stumbling block for many. Uh, fourthly, you need to know a little bit about uh, Christianity and science. You need to understand how could Christianity and science work together. How can they, do they complement each other? Are they opposed to each other constantly fighting? Do you have to choose between Christianity or science and pick one or the other? You need to be able to defend uh, your uh, response to that. Uh, Fifthly, you need to understand world religions. In Canada, people are wondering, how could there be only one religion? How could you call all other religions wrong if you're claiming that your religion is right? So you need to know something about world religions, uh, what they believe. In fact, not all of them even believe in God. So how could they all get to God and different views of God? and why Jesus is, is supreme. You need to understand that as well. And finally, you need to know something about the resurrection of Jesus. This, according to the Apostle Paul, is the hallmark of the Christian faith, that if Jesus is not alive, then all of Christianity, this whole entire church, everything that we're doing is a waste of time. We should have slept in this morning. But if Christianity, uh, sorry, if Jesus is alive, then Christianity is true, and therefore you need to have some uh, evidence for that. There is plenty out there. And so I would think that those are the big six. If you can handle those, then you are on your way to apply this verse, right? Many of you love the Bible. You you listen to the commands of Scripture. You want to love your enemies. Uh, you want to you know uh, live live uh, the Bible. Sorry, live what the Bible says in like, sexual life and your marriage and your family. Well, live what the Bible says with this command to make sure you're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. The fourth or sorry third point is for a reason, for the hope that is in you. And hope I think is so important. Hope is important because this is how what you guys advertise your church offers. Uh, hope lives here, right, Pastor Paul? It's on your bulletin. You you pay your good well-earned money to buy bus benches or the advertising there to tell people about the hope that you have here. So if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, what's the hope that you have?" How would you answer? That question. What is your hope anchored in? What is the content of your hope? Peter in his letter says that Jesus is a living hope. And that's where our hope is centered in. That Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And as long as our churches continue to talk about Jesus, we will continue to tell people about the hope that is available to them. You see, it's a hope that we cannot just simply take for granted. Last night I was talking to a guy after the after the service. And he was, he was mentioning how, you know, as I was talking, he said, you know, if, if I didn't want to go to heaven, according to your view of, of, the, of what the Bible says, could I just opt out for heaven and just, you know, completely die? Uh, you know, not go to the other place, but just, just, like, cease to exist? Is there any room for that? And I, and I was wondering if he was trying to test me or challenge me, but he was actually sincere. I said, well, what do you mean? Because I was trying to answer the question or get the question behind the question. He says, well, I'm just so tired of thinking about everything and, and wondering. And I just want it all to be over. And I realized, uh-oh, this is a, a lot more serious than I, could have, than I would have thought. This, he was sincerely wondering, what is it all about? And is there any way for me to get out of this? Because you could tell he was just tired uh, of feeling despair and the hopelessness that his atheism offered him. I'm going to go back a couple of slides here to show you this article uh, from Maclean's magazine claims has already been uh, sourced in our, in, our, um, in our service today. But here's another article that really caught me. It was fr- called The Broken Generation. It was a study of universities in Canada. Uh, U of A is even mentioned there. 1,600 of U of A students reported that things felt hopeless for them. I'm wondering about how deep the Oilers' despair is getting onto our U of A campus <laughs> But it's not just about their hockey team. It's also about the worldview that is seeped into our universities that says that there is no purpose in life, that we are simply a product of time and chance. And there was no meaning, because there's no meaning in the beginning, there's no purpose in the end. And today we are simply just one in seven billion people floating around on a diet, or sorry, on a big rock, floating around a giant supernova star that's either going to blow up or burn out one day. And so try to make the most of your days, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're just going to get buried into the ground, and they're, they're going to eat egg salad sandwiches at your funeral one day. So try to make the best of it. And some people are really struggling. They're struggling with the economy. They're struggling with their personal life. They're struggling with our unmet dreams. And they're struggling with the fact that they're being told day after day that life is meaningless. And so as a result, there's a sense of despair. And I saw it in the eyes of that young man that talked to me yesterday. Cornell University has noticed the despair so bad that because so many of their students are committing suicide by jumping off of their bridges that they've installed suicide nets underneath there. Underneath their bridges, so that kids won't be jumping off. I mean, I look at that and I say, there's some kind of a problem in our culture. That it's starting in our universities, and those minds are being shaped that will carry on for the rest of their life. It's despair, it's hopelessness, and it's no surprise to me that Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, the Christian hope is a great luxury. If you were raised in the church, you were given a gift, and that gift is this, that you were made for a purpose, that your life has meaning simply because God made you. You weren't just an accident. You were made by God. He put his image inside of every single one of us that no matter what happens to us, no matter what anyone's done to us, no matter if we have a home or rent a home or uh, or homeless, no matter how much money we have or what car we drive or if we have a job or don't have a job... No matter what, we have the image of God, which means every single person has dignity, value, and worth. And even though we respond to that beautiful truth from God by saying, God, forget you, I've got other things. I want to focus on my career. I want to focus on my education. I want to focus on my car. I want to focus on attracting the opposite sex. I want to focus on everything else but you, and I'm going to spend all day being so busy that I have no time for you. Even though we do that to God in response to His love for us. He continues to pursue us. We ignore him. He pursues us. Christianity says that God came down. We don't have to get to God. God came to us in the person of Jesus. He lived and he taught us what God is like. He taught us how to have a relationship and then he purchased the opportunity for us to uh, be with him again, to be reconciled to God by his death on the cross and death did not get the last word God showed he is more powerful by dying on a, uh, sorry live, uh, rising again three days later and then promising eternal life for anybody who wanted to be a part of it no matter what they had done he would wipe the slate clean and give them a new chance and they could live forever he said because I live you will live as well in a place with no more pain and no more abuse and no more divorce and no more bullying a place of peace a place of rest and a place where you could do that for eternity that to me is good news. And that is the source of my hope. Amen. And that's what you're telling people when you advertise it on bus on bus stops. You're telling people that that kind of hope lives here, that you could find meaning and purpose and value and a kind of love that you never even knew was possible. And you could do it in a group of people that have that same hope. Amen. So Peter says, you got to be ready for this kind of stuff. And out of the vacuum of atheism, a void is filled. That Jesus, I believe, I am so optimistic that this could be a new day for our churches. If we could get it, if we could learn to engage skeptics, if we could stop making fun of them, if we could start engaging with them and loving them as God loves them and meeting them on their ground. Pastor Paul will tell you, you've got to meet them where they're at. Not where you want them to be, not for even where you hope they would be, but where they're at. Which means if they have questions... You have to love them enough to answer those questions. You might not think that the question is worth it. You might just think it's enough for you to, to be walking through a field and see, oh, there, it can't be a uh, chance. It's got to be God. And you might hear a song and say, it has to be God. But this person who is loved by God really has questions about your Bible. And will you love them enough to learn why you believe the Bible? Would you take time to turn off Netflix and uh, open up a book and read about why we trust the Bible? It won't even be good for them necessarily or it might be good for them and I guarantee it'll be good for you as well. This is what apologetics does. You've heard the old uh, picture, sorry, you've seen the old picture. There's us on one side and there's God on the other side and sin has created a chasm that we, no good deeds, no amount of recycling, no amount of, you know, drinking all the kale smoothies that you want. Nothing's gonna get us to God on our own. Sin is just too wide of a chasm, but Jesus is the bridge, that Jesus died for our sin to reconcile us to God, as I said, and that's the good news of Christianity. But the problem is that people have a hard time getting to that good news because they have these other objections that cloud them from seeing uh, the good news. They have questions about the Bible. They have questions about philosophy. They have questions about science. They have all kinds of questions, and we have to love them enough to dismantle those walls by answering their questions and we have to love them enough to be prepared for it and so all apologetics does is it says i can help you remove some of those barriers if you are truly willing to uh, to listen and to engage with this and so through conversations through relationships uh, we can dismantle those uh, objective those those barriers i should say so that people can see the good news and then finally, our fourth point. I am so glad that this is in there. The last point that, for, that Peter makes to his early church as they're trying to engage in a, in a hostile environment, in a hostile culture, he tells them, don't forget that first and foremost, you're disciples of Jesus. So notice how the, this, ver, this verse starts. It starts off, honor Jesus the Lord as holy, and then it ends with treat people as Jesus would want you to treat them. You see, when you go into a conversation, oftentimes it can get intense. I remember one time I was at a wedding, and this guy said, oh, you're the pastor. I was doing the wedding, so he knew I was the pastor. He knew I was a a religious guy, so he wanted to start asking me questions, and he wanted to just unload the truck on all of his objections to Christianity, and he he started yelling. So imagine, when was the last wedding you were at? I mean, it's peaceful, it's fun, there's cool music, everybody's trying to be happy. This guy is literally yelling at me amidst everyone there. So I'm trying to be like, okay, calm down. But it gets like that, right? Questions of religion get like that. And yet, Peter says, don't give up your mandate to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to do well to others even though they do poor to you. So Peter says, do, it with, do your apologetics with gentleness and respect. One of the best moments yesterday was actually on the drive to the debate. I was sitting there with my, my wife, and, my, and Abby was in the back, and I was quite quiet. I had never done a debate before. I didn't know what was uh, going to happen. So I'm just kind of sitting there and breathing and doing one of these, and Haley looks at me and she goes, look, all you have to do is just be, be confident, but don't be a jerk. Just, just all you got to do is just love Matt with gentleness and respect and people will know it and that will be a win. And it was such a good reminder for me. It was such a good reminder that if I was to go in there and, I mean, the thing is, he didn't have any accountability, right? There's no, there's no teachings that he had to submit to. There was no one that he would follow. He could do whatever he wants so, and he did. He took shots at me. He took shots at Christianity. took shots at the Bible. Made fun of God. But I wasn't allowed to do that. Because the one I follow told me that I have to uh, engage with people with gentleness and respect. I'm not saying I did a better job than Matt in my own heart. There were things that I thought because I'll never lose that sinful nature. But I knew that I was accountable to the one who called me to love my enemies and not throw stones at them even when they're throwing stones at me. And so that's the difference that being a Christian makes, is that you never are allowed to, when you're engaged in these discussions, you're not allowed to simply throw out all the other laws of discipleship. A lot of my friends were like, why weren't you harder on him? Why didn't you nail him on this? You could have easily made fun of him. I've heard you say these things before. Why didn't you? And I said, well, because I'm called to uh, engage with gentleness and respect. And if I'm going to preach about that tomorrow morning, I better do it on Saturday night or I'm going to (laughs) have a lot of answering to do. We preach best what we need to learn most. Amen, Pastor. So that's what I think uh, is Im- is important for us uh, today. How are we doing for time? We're over, oh dear. Okay, that's what I thought. I'm just going to give you a couple of points then uh, over time. First one: be a dealer of hope. I want you guys to know that as if you advertise hope, you better go out there and just share hope. Be bold about it. Do not be scared. Secondly. Pray for renewal in our churches. Pray that God would stir up uh, these conversations because this is ultimately uh, not about people. This is about uh, principalities and powers, as Paul reminds the Ephesians in uh, chapter six. Thirdly, become a resource yourself. So grow and learn. Listen to podcasts if you're not a reader. Read, uh, Read books if you're not a podcaster. There's tons of stuff on YouTube. Just start the conversation. I encourage one guy at the end of last service, if you're interested in apologetics, get a book. Pick any book. I, I know there's one in the foyer out there. You can start with that. But grab some other people together on a Wednesday morning or something. Go out for coffee and just read one chapter a day and discuss it. And just learn and, and then go to apply it throughout the rest of the week and, and continue to talk with each other. But become a resource yourself so that you can help others. And fourthly, engage with skeptics and doubters. Let this church be a place that is open to uh, atheists and people that are and an opening to having them express their doubts. And even Christians, as they have those nagging questions that, that uh, plague us often, uh, be a place that it's okay to ask tough questions where you're not going to get chased out of t- uh, the church because you happen to uh, have some questions about something that's being said. Uh, don't let atheism become uh, a punchline in your community groups, you know, when you meet throughout the week or whatever. Uh, be a place that's open to it. So if you do those things uh, and you continue on as a church, I'm excited for what's going to happen. I'm excited for the growth of this church as we seek to be Christians, ambassadors of Jesus in the 21st century, and we give hope to uh, to students, business people, uh, young and old. And I will pray for you that, that God would seal this and that this would be a, a bastion of, of defense of the Christian faith in your city. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the truth. I mean, so often we we seem to take it for granted, but there is a beautiful hope in this church. There is a resource that is valuable for the entire world. And so we pray, God, for those skeptics across town that are meeting today. We pray that they would encounter people from this church who would be able to give them reasons for the hope that is in them and that they would turn to you, Jesus. So we continue to fix our eyes on you. You are the source of truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we love you for it. Help us to be faithful to you this week. Give us the courage. Give us the strength. And go with us. In Jesus' name, amen.